Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort of sort through the leftovers from a very nourishing week on the Vatican beat and try to heat up the spiciest dishes. Here's what's on the menu this week. We begin with no drama, mama, but a couple of yucks. Pope Francis wraps up his consistory and then two days of meetings with all the cardinals of the world without any huge surprise and without any major upheaval. But there was at least one Catholic bishop who found a way to get a couple of laughs out of it. We will explain all of that. Secondly, it's time to recall the fall of the wall. With the death of former Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev at the age of 91, the world is celebrating his legacy, but that is inevitably tied up with the legacy of another 20th century titan, St. John Paul II. We'll explain why. Third, reversal of fortune. Pope Francis over the weekend decreed a sweeping overhaul of the Knights of Malta, which, at least according to critics, weirdly seems to vindicate the very people that Pope Francis was trying to shut down six years ago when all of this began. We'll unpack what's going on there. Fourth, the trouble with trolls. The Pontifical Academy for Life finds itself once again duking it out with critics on social media, and we will once again ask the question, whether that is actually a wise use of their time and resources. And finally, the smiling Pope. Pope John Paul I, the smiling Pope of 33 days, is beatified on a memorable Roman Sunday. We will give a brief look back to his brief shining moment in the history of the Catholic Church. All of that and more is waiting for you after the break, so please stick around. All right, everybody, happy Tuesday to you. Happy September 6th in the year of our Lord, 2022. For those of you watching this in the United States, I hope you had a great holiday weekend, gorged yourself on the last day, fleeting hours of summer. For those of you watching this anyplace else, well, you know, happy Tuesday. We begin this week with Pope Francis's high-profile, high-octane, keenly anticipated late August summits Essentially, he held a consistory for the creation of 20 new cardinals, including 16 eligible to vote for the next pope on August 27th. On August 28th, he went to the central Italian city of L'Aquila, the final resting place of the last pope to voluntarily resign the papacy before Benedict XVI. And then on the 29th and 30th, he held two days of meetings with all the cardinals of the world to discuss Vatican reform. Now, all of this had prompted sort of fevered speculation in a lot of quarters that Pope Francis was going to use these big events to deliver some kind of August surprise. At the beginning, it was the possibility that he might announce his own resignation. Then, when that seemed increasingly improbable, it was the idea that maybe he was going to eliminate or reform the office of emeritus pope. He dropped some hints along those lines. Others thought maybe this massive rethink of Humane Vitae, the church's ban on artificial birth control that some people have long thought Francis might be on the verge of delivering, maybe this was going to be the moment for that. In the end, these events came and went with none of that. I mean, the surprise was no surprise. 
Now, other people thought that maybe when these 200 or so cardinals got behind closed doors, it was going to be like, you know, mixed martial arts, right? It was going to be the, oct the octagon, and there would be blood sport. But, in fact, none of that really happened either. I mean, it is true that there was some discussion and some disagreement on certain points. I mean, example, you know, Pope Francis in his Reform of the Vatican has called for the idea of appointing laity to run Vatican departments. Some cardinals thought maybe that's not such a hot idea. Maybe it dilutes the teaching authority of bishops. Maybe cardinals just might find it embarrassing to be bossed around by laity. Other cardinals thought, no, this is a great idea. This is the direction we should be going. In the end, there seemed to be a rough consensus around the idea that maybe there are some departments in the Vatican, like the dicastery for bishops or the dicastery for clergy, that should still be run by bishops, by cardinals. But in other cases, like the secretariat for the economy or the dicastery for the family, there's no particular reason laity couldn't run those outfits. In any event, there was no major upheaval. Now, I mean, some cardinals, a handful, did use this opportunity to try to push the envelope a little bit. German Cardinal Gerhard Müller, for instance, former head of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, warned of what he called hyper-papalism, you know, sort of exaggerated deference to papal authority. And German Cardinal, why is it always Germans, by the way? It's a question worth asking. But anyway, 93-year-old German Cardinal Walter Brandmüller, who was one of the dubia cardinals, right, who sort of pressed the Pope on Amoris Laetitia, communion for the divorced and remarried. Anyway, he submitted a written speech, which he never had the chance to actually deliver, in which he basically argued that the election of the next Pope should be restricted in entirely to cardinals who reside in the city of Rome, because, he argued, Pope Francis has appointed so many outlier cardinals from funky places who don't know anything about the Vatican that they would be too easily manipulated and led around by the nose. Now, look, you have to at least give Brandmuller credit for chutzpah, right? I mean, basically, he wanted to stand in front of those very cardinals and tell them he didn't trust them to elect the next pope. On the other hand, I think when you're 93, you're kind of licensed to be cranky, aren't you? Like, I think at that age, if you've lived that long, you have the right to say whatever you feel like. In any event, there didn't seem to be any groundswell behind this idea, neither were there any fireworks over it. And so, basically, the whole thing ended with a whimper rather than a bang. What do we make of that? I think the obvious conclusion is that we have reached that point where the major internal battles at the leadership level of the Francis papacy are basically over. Cardinals and other top prelates who are excited by the direction things are moving, they're not fighting for it anymore. Instead, they're trying to consolidate and institutionalize it. Those cardinals who are maybe unhappy, who would like a different direction, they're basically keeping their powder dry and awaiting whatever comes next. So. I think the prognosis is that at least out in full public view, we are not going to see things like the two synods for the family anymore, where senior bishops are fighting it out on the public stage. Instead, you know, I think whatever discussions are going on are likely to go on in private, 
in the next moment where we will get a kind of public reality check about where people stand won't come for a little while. Now, I, I will say, however, that doesn't mean there was nothing interesting that happened in and around this consistory. Case in point, I think maybe the most interesting moment came not in Rome, but almost 400 miles away in the far north of Italy in the town of Como. Now, what happened in Como? Como just got a new cardinal in this consistory, Oscar, Cardinal Oscar Cantori, the Bishop of Como. And he got the red hat instead of the Archbishop of Milan, Archbishop Mario Delpini, who has now been passed over not once, not twice, not three times, but four in the Pope Francis era. Now, this is fully consistent with Pope Francis distributing red hats to places that haven't typically had them, right? But nevertheless, because Northern Italy got a new cardinal in a place that's only 30 miles away from Milan, the omission this time seemed especially galling. Also, Milan has had a cardinal since time immemorial, right? It's the Sea of Ambrose and so on, and they kind of feel like they have a natural law right to a cardinal. And so everybody was talking about how Delpini had been passed over. So Delpini gets invited to go to Como to deliver a little, like, congratulations talk, right, for Cantori. And instead of trying to ignore the elephant in the room, he actually dealt with it head on. And he said, look, let's talk about why the Pope chose this guy and not me. And he said, okay, first of all, he said, even the Eternal Father doesn't know what the Jesuits are thinking. Which, you know, some people took as a slam on Francis, but frankly, it's just, it's an old joke in the Catholic Church about how inscrutable Jesuits are, right? Most people thought it was funny. Then he said, maybe the Pope thought the Archbishop of Milan just already has plenty to do. Then he said, maybe what the Pope actually thought is that those big mouths up in Milan don't even know where Rome is. And so it's probably not a good idea to involve them too much in the governance of the universal church, which is, frankly, a nice piece of self-deprecating humor because it plays off the stereotype that people in Milan, quite honestly, consider themselves a little superior to the rest of Italy and especially superior to Rome. And so he was taking a shot sort of at his own expense. And then finally, he riffed off soccer. And he said, look, maybe this is the problem. The Pope is a fan of an Argentinian soccer team that never wins anything, whereas Milan wins all of the time. And so maybe he just wanted to give a shout out to somebody else. This a reference to the fact that AC Milan won the Italian championship last year. Now, all of this like, has been spun up into some quarters as some great, you know, like attack on the Pope or something. Truthfully, I think it was just a bishop trying to poke a little fun at his own expense and, you know, like not duck the obvious thing that is on people's minds. In any event, look, a sense of humor in the apostolic college is not the most common thing in the world. And I think when we find it, we probably ought to celebrate it. All right. Second up this week, the fall of the wall. So Mikhail Gorbachev died at the age of 91. This triggered a cavalcade of pundits and commentators celebrating his legacy as the man who presided over the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet empire, and that's entirely justified. However, I would simply point out that if we want to ask the question, why was Gorbachev willing 
to do that. I think we have to acknowledge that part of it maybe was his own internal moral compass that led him to the policies of perestroika and glasnost. But part of it also is that Gorbachev was a practical politician. He could see the handwriting on the wall. The Soviet system was going to fall apart. And the only question was how. And why did he know in the 1980s that the Soviet system was on its last legs? Well, I would submit that part of it is because you had the man of the century, John Paul the Great, a determined Polish pope who was inspiring the solidarity movement in Poland and inspiring civil resistance all across the Soviet sphere that helped create the context in which Gorbachev felt he had no choice. In other words, my point would be, yes, by all means, celebrate the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, but never forget that what made the Gorbachev we now know, that is, the reformer who was willing to let his empire go, what made him possible in part was also the legacy of the Polish Pope, St. John Paul II. All right, reversal of fortune. Third up this week, the Knights of Malta, their formal name, the, oh God, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the Knights of the Military Hospitaller, no, sorry, the Sovereign Military Order of the Knights Hospitaller of St. John of Jerusalem Roads in Malta. Put that in a t-shirt, right? Anyway, the Knights of Malta were overhauled this week on Saturday as Pope Francis decreed a new constitution and then set the election of new leadership for the organization on January 25th. Now, here's the thing. It's, it's a kind of a weird story. Six years ago, let's roll the clock back to then, okay? So we're talking 2016. The leader of the Knights of Malta was a geriatric professed religious by the name of Fra Matthew Festing, who, in cahoots with American Cardinal Raymond Burke, seen as the leader of the traditionalist opposition to Pope Francis, right? They tried to fire the lay German chief executive of the Knights of Malta, who was seen as a reformer, a guy more of the mind of Pope Francis, over a controversy that had to do with accusations that a Knights-sponsored charity in Myanmar had been involved in the distribution of condoms. Okay, now when that happened, Pope Francis intervened. He ordered that lay German reformer reinstated. He demanded, more or less, Festing's resignation. He dumped Burke as the spiritual patron of the Knights of Malta. And he began a process of reform that led to Saturday's decree. Now, you would think, based on that history, that the Pope's reform would uphold the lay reformers and it would kind of squelch or at least limit, right, this, this cabal of elderly professed religious, most of whom are ancient European nobility, who are kind of at the top of the pyramid in the Knights. Well, but what critics would say is that it actually does the exact opposite. Basically, the accusation is that this new constitution reaffirms that the Knights of Malta are a religious order and that the professed religious are the heart of that order, so that ultimate authority in the Knights is vested in them, subject, of course, to the obedience that professed religious order to the Pope, or, or rather, owe to the Pope. Now, what critics are saying is, number one, 
This basically destroys the Knights of Malta as a sovereign entity. The Knights are a sovereign state under international law. They have diplomatic relations with over 100 countries and the European Union. But if their constitution and their government can be arbitrarily, you know, not only suspended, but like eliminated by the head of another sovereign state, then are they really sovereign? And so critics will say this basically destroys all of that. And critics are also saying this is an act of disrespect to the lay members of the Knights of Malta, some 13,500 of them, who actually run the order's charitable works around the world and basically keep the order afloat. In the run-up to this decree, the heads of 13 national associations, the Knights have 48, 13 of them that represent 95% of the order's works, had written to the Pope begging him not to do this. He did it anyway. In the wake of this decision, one high-profile member of the Knights is predicting that this is actually going to lead to the dissolution of the Knights of Malta, saying what's going to happen is that these knights, uh, these national associations are just going to pick up their chips and walk away from the table. They will reincorporate under civil law, decouple themselves from the leadership of the Knights of Malta and do their own thing, which will leave this group of about 35 professed religious rattling around in a lot of expensive Roman real estate, but with nothing really to do. Now, that may be overly dramatic, but what it does symbolize is that the tensions that this overhaul were intended to resolve are far from over. The provisional leadership that the Pope has appointed are saying that they like what the Pope has done, they think it will provide better governance for the Knights, and they are looking forward to these elections on January 25th. Critics are saying this is a disaster. You know, we're going to see how all of this plays out. I think the only message here is stay tuned. All right, two other brief things to mention this week. One, on Sunday, Pope Francis presided over the beatification of one of his predecessors, Pope John Paul I, former Cardinal Albino Luciani of Venice, who was known to the world as the smiling pope. Remember, after the storm and drong of the end of the Paul VI era in the Vatican, John Paul I sort of fell upon the world like a thunderclap in August 1978. Here was a pope who laughed and joked and who seemed comfortable with ordinary people and who smiled all of the time and just sort of set the world on fire. Now, of course, in the end, he only lived 33 days, and that set the stage for the election of Pope John Paul II. Nevertheless, Pope Francis beatified Albino Luciani maybe not primarily for his 33 days as pope, but for the whole life that had preceded that, extolling him as a model of humility and service, rejection of wealth and power and privilege, a guy who drew his comfort from the rank and file, from ordinary folks, and not from pomp and circumstance. I'm old enough to remember the election of John Paul I. I was 13 years old when it happened. And I didn't know much about church politics, but I did know that it felt like the weight of the world had lifted off Catholic shoulders because you had a pope you could feel good about. One thing I want to add, I, I want to send a special shout out today to a dear friend of mine, Father Diego Lorenzi, who was the private secretary 
of Cardinal Luciani in Venice and then followed him to the Vatican. And so for 33 days, he was the personal secretary to Pope John Paul I. He's an Orione father. He's now 83, year old, 83 years old, living in a retirement home in northern Italy. I could spend the next five hours telling you stories about what a magnificent man and magnificent priest Diego Lorenzi is. But all I can say is, Father Diego, I know how happy you must be today, and nobody other than maybe your boss deserves it more. So congratulations, felicitations, ad multosanos. Finally this week, Italian Archbishop Vincenzo Paglia found himself in hot water again recently. He is the head of the Pontifical Academy for Life. He gave an interview to Italian television where, among other things, he was asked about Italy's abortion law. In 1978, Italy adopted a law legalizing abortion in the first trimester but placing certain limits on it and allowing for conscientious objection. In 1981, there was a popular referendum that attempted, well, there were two referenda actually. One attempted to overturn the law making abortion illegal again. The other was attempting to expand abortion rights. They won't, they both went down in flames. And ever since then, the motto of Italian politics has been that you don't touch this law. Paglia basically said that on TV, that by this point, there's just no changing the abortion law in Italy. It's a settled matter of the, the country's legal order. Now, that was really just a factual statement that anybody who has spent five minutes in this country would recognize, but it got him into trouble because Paglia has a history, you know? I mean, he's seen as a kind of liberal change agent in the Academy for Life, which not so long ago was considered the Vatican stronghold of the conservative, most robustly pro-life forces in the church. So anything he says is gonna stir controversy. Now, what happened is that this criticism, by the way, nobody of any real name was voicing this criticism. It was circulating on social media. The official social media platforms of the Academy for Life, as they have done in the past, waded into the fray immediately, uh, started dispatching you know, these responses on social media, calling the criticism of Paglia specious and offensive. Now, here's the thing. They're right. I mean, the truth of it is, most of this criticism was pretty specious, and some of it was obviously personal and therefore fairly offensive. But I think the question has to be asked, and I have asked this question before. The kinds of people who dispatch angry tweets, who spend hours in their mother's basement trawling people's Facebook pages to post angry responses to whatever they say, are these the kind of people that are going to be dissuaded from that activity if you call them offensive in public? Or is it more likely that they're going to feel like, oh my God, the big bad Vatican acknowledged me, I matter, and that therefore they're just going to crank up whatever it is they were already doing? I mean, in other words, is there a point at which a Vatican department just shouldn't be swinging at the low pitches? That's not a decision for me to make. I don't get paid to do that. They got smarter and better people than me to handle these things. I would just raise the question of, uh, are you making it more or less likely that there's going to be specious and offensive criticism of your boss by calling it specious and offensive on Twitter? Just want to ask the question.
That is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We are going to be here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. Have a fantastic and blessed week in the meantime. By the way, my wife's family is on their way to Rome, so pray for us. This is going to be a big and interesting week in the Allen household here in Rome. We will talk to you next Tuesday. Be well, be safe, be happy. Thanks for watching.